Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, which covers the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive health startups and leaders. So you are listening to one of our first 20 episodes. So first of all, thank you so much for listening. As you can imagine with the podcast, they get more and more popular, which ours certainly did after episode 20. So we started giving proper introductions, long introductions, and we upgraded our equipment and everything like that. So that's why you're hearing from me now, because we're putting this at the start of every one of those first 20 episodes. So I am your host. My name is James Someru. I'm an anesthetics and intensive care doctor by background. So I practiced for five years. I did loads of different jobs in policy and leadership within the UK NHS. I've run two different health tech accelerators to help startups grow, access different markets in the UK and abroad. And now I'm a co-founder of HS and we build, scale and invest in the best health tech startups. So if you want to get in touch with us, then head on over to the description of this podcast. In there, you will find all of the links to our social media, website, emails, etc. So click on those, follow us, let us know what you think of the podcast and feel free to suggest any guests. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Connect with us. Let us know what you think. Welcome to today's episode of the HS podcast. Uh, joining us today are Adam and Alina from Febris, uh, and we're going to be talking about AI in healthcare. So guys, to kick things off, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Febris? Sure. Um, so at Febris, our mission is really to enable people to access healthcare at their fingertips. And the way we do that is by designing an AI-powered platform that resides on your mobile phone and connects to existing devices so that really anyone can be a doctor in their community. And the specific challenges we really started uh, working on are respiratory conditions. Um, So many of us experience things like pneumonia, bronchitis. Some of us have chronic conditions like asthma. And it's so difficult to access the healthcare that we need when we need it particularly in health systems that are so busy, um, need, you know, two weeks um, in advance booking of appointments. Um, Really, our mission there is to enable people to place a small device onto their chest and identify when when a problem arises um, so that they can act quickly. Uh, We're particularly focused on young children and the elderly, um, so the two most vulnerable groups. And we have been working in two different markets, India and the UK so far. Yeah, our vision really is to put uh, healthcare back into uh, the individual's hands, put the individual at the, the centre of their own healthcare. So we see a future where you're wearing a wearable, it's collecting data in real time, and our AI is driving a diagnostic engine behind that to determine if you've got something wrong before you even experience any symptoms. Cool. And for people listening who may not know AI as in-depth as you do, obviously AI is a broad umbrella term for a number of different types of technologies. What specifically are you guys doing with your artificial intelligence algorithm? And I guess for the benefit of the listeners, what are some other ways that AI is being employed in healthcare? At the yeah, great, great question. Um, so I tell you what we're doing and then I'll broaden um, that a little bit more to explain what the landscape of innovation looks like in this space. So we specifically connect to existing small devices. Um, so if you imagine your um, doctor's stethoscope, your wearable device, things like pulse oximeters, we connect to these and are capturing their signals onto our mobile phone. 
AI or algorithms are then analyzing those signals as if they're a doctor so that they can identify symptoms early. And then the next level up is once you have all these symptoms, how do you combine them into a diagnosis? So in a lot of ways, the algorithms replicate the process that a doctor goes through when they see a patient. There are many other examples of AI in this space. Uh, the more famous ones are in the imaging um, domain. Um, so, you know, a lot of diseases are diagnosed um, via, let's say, an MRI scan or a CT. Um, and you can design sophisticated algorithms that look through those images and identify things like small tumors or how treatment is progressing, for example, in cancer. And for, for you both, what were your reasons for starting a health tech company specifically tackling the problems that you've mentioned? For me, really, it was quite um, a personal experience that I had when I was um, at the medical group at the World Health Organization back in 2014. That was the first time I encountered a very shocking um, statistic. Pneumonia is the number one killer of under fives. Uh, it kills nearly one million children in that age bracket every single year, uh, which I thought was absolutely appalling. It's a perfectly treatable disease. And a lot of this mortality is because the disease is so difficult to diagnose um, in the community. And small children are very vulnerable. Um, so the disease progresses really quickly. And by the time you realize that they have pneumonia, often they have to get hospitalized. Very similar issue that, let's say, the elderly experience in this country. Um, so for me, it was just really frustrating looking at all the different solutions out there and, and um, identifying a big gap that has to do with the lack of clinical expertise. Um, so worldwide, we're missing seven point three million clinical workers. Um, so it's virtually impossible for all of us to get healthcare when we need it. And really my motivation was to start harnessing the power of machine learning to bring community-based precision diagnosis for complex conditions like pneumonia. Very similar, but uh, slightly different where I came across what Alina's doing where her research was at Oxford University. And I just felt impassioned that this has to exist as a consumer of healthcare services at the moment. It feels, even for someone that's healthy 90% of the time, it's incredibly inconvenient getting um, access to quality care, uh, having to visit GPs to get a diagnosis that isn't necessarily um, 100% accurate. Um, being able to deliver that at, at um at home via a smartphone and some sensors or wearables is something that you know I want to exist one day for, for me as well so um, yeah I, I just believe that this technology has to exist I think it's the future of healthcare. This is why AI is going to be so important in the landscape right because it's going to make healthcare accessible at pretty much all, all times it's going to democratize health as well so people on lower incomes are going to get better care rather than just the rich getting their own doctor that can see them whenever. So it's going to allow access a lot quicker and a lot easier. Absolutely. I mean, we, we've, we've done work with expert pulmonologists um, looking at some of the lung sound data we've captured in the past. And even amongst the, these incredibly experienced individuals, the, the, the level of agreement between them is, is still not 100%. It's less than 50%, in fact. And there's this huge quality aspect to, to the quality of healthcare, which currently isn't being addressed, which is that where your GP uh, was trained and where, you're, where, where you live, even if you have access to a doctor, which isn't guaranteed, 
like the quality of care you're getting isn't going to be consistent. So there's there's two elements to that that quality aspect. One is access to care, regardless of where you live, and the second is even if you have access to that care, making sure that we're all receiving the same quality. After you guys had this idea for Febris, I mean, how did you then go from an idea to an MVP or a product? I mean, there must have been so much that you had to do. I mean, if you're going to go and train an AI algorithm, you've obviously got to get data sets from somewhere. You've got loads and loads of stuff to do. So how did you go from idea to product? Yeah, a really interesting question. We um, originally started working with um, some existing data sets. Um, so a lot of the clinical data, or pretty much all the clinical data nowadays is um, stored in hospitals. Um, so the original approach was access to a hospital data set and then try designing algorithms that can analyze, uh, identify pneumonia in particular based on that. The challenge you have is that what works in a hospital doesn't work in the community. Um, so whilst that produced beautiful AI algorithms, very accurate, um, the moment you take them to a community setting where everything's really noisy, the sensors are very noisy, the users behave in different ways because they're not standardized like you'll find them in a hospital, it's really difficult to kind of make that work across the board. So really the kind of the inflection point for us was... Um, running a study in India with 1,300 children um, mm. that captured that first incredibly noisy data set. We put a very basic prototype, uh, an app that communicates to two devices into the hands of very minimally trained people, community healthcare workers. Mm. Um, and then they were able to form an examination that had data quality very similar to that of what a GP would do in a, in a practice in the UK, for example. So that gave us a lot of confidence that really who captures the data is not essential as long as you design these algorithms carefully enough to control for data quality. We can turn very minimally trained people into um, kind of GPs uh, via our technology. So that's really interesting. So you got to that point really quickly then by the sounds of it. So quite literally you, i mean you train the algorithm on that initial data set and then almost straight away you were getting pretty much lay people to be diagnosing pneumonia as much as a gp if i got that right uh, i wish it worked that quickly in healthcare unfortunately <laughs> it never does <laughs> so there is a lot of trial and error and user-centered design in in between that goes into it um and you just really... said it so flippantly it's just like oh right i was trying to get to the <laughs> culmination in the story <laughs> um, no really there is a lot of trial and error um, so particularly sure. with user-centered design you need to work really closely uh, with your target audience to figure out um, all the nitty-gritties of um, the user interface um, the data quality um, but also you need large amounts of data um, so you can start prototyping with small numbers uh, but to get to something that's scalable and transferable uh, you need to you need to capture quite sizable um, data set. So that's a really interesting point, actually. So I think user centered design has come up in pretty much every single podcast that we've that mm. we've done. Um, it's one of those things that you know you, you're building out an AI algorithm and things. You you might often forget that a lot of it is still that that front end UI UX and just how important it is. So how do you guys go about working on that and, and building it in? Is it a really important thing behind the algorithm, or do you guys just sort of um, think of it less so? Um, it's incredibly important when it comes to um, the data, data capture for us. Um, so to give you an example, 
um, during the study in India, uh, the biggest challenge we faced was children wanting to play with the devices, not <laughs> something you want to bake into your algorithms. Um, so there we had to undergo a lot of uh, kind of user changes to um, incorporate different children's videos, sounds, particularly because they're really young, they're under five. Um, so they're the challenges you never see coming. Um, yeah. But you, once you've overcome those, really, the, the AI becomes about standardizing the analysis of the data. Um, and that's a layer that's further removed from the user. So you can capture that uncertainty in the analysis, but where AI excels is being standardized, um, which is something humans are not designed to do. Yeah. It just shows the value of just staying agile and just testing it at every point, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the the MVP we worked with last last year in India were, was just developed in-house. And I think it was, I mean, it, it, it served the purpose, but it was definitely a clunky user interface. Yeah. Uh, particularly when you think that these healthcare workers are juggling a under five-year-old with a couple of handheld devices and a mobile phone. We didn't quite appreciate what uh, the touch points on, on the phone, how, how valuable they are, like around being near the, the, the thumb at the base of the phone, etc. Mm. Um, the latest iteration, we've actually been working with a UX designer who's kind of opened our eyes to some of the mistakes we previously made, but mm. that's been really helpful. But, but again, that shows the point of creating an MVP even if it's not perfect, getting it out there, getting it used, and you'll just learn from doing that as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, Lena built that built that MVP and no prior um, Android experience. We just kind of cobbled it together. Um, it was just enough to collect the data that we needed and have a suitable user experience, but it by no means was a commercially viable product at that stage. How did you go about accessing the the community and that project in india yeah partnerships are absolutely essential on that front um regardless of what setting you operate in um but particularly um if you're a technology developer you should never be under the impression that you're in any way capable of delivering care or accessing the workflow without interacting quite um intensely with a partnership so for us we worked with um an ngo called apnalaya um, in India, that covers around 1.5 million people, uh, provides care for 1.5 million people in Mumbai. Um, and really a lot of the richness of those lessons um, came from that, that and also a, a public health hospital we work with. Um, it's in, incredibly important for healthcare because our stakeholders are never just the patients. Um, so the more you bake um, those lessons into the design of the technology early on, the more future-proof it becomes. So we're going to have uh, a number of listeners who are either very early stage companies in healthcare AI or potentially AI companies in general, or who are looking at or thinking about learning a little bit more about the artificial intelligence space within healthcare. What sort of advice would you give to people uh, getting started on that journey, um, you know, being quite a way away um, from, from where you guys began? Hmm. Join HS. <laughs> <laughs> become an HS ambassador <laughs> to get access to other companies working in the space. Uh, well, joking aside, uh, there's obviously a lot of um, material that you can read online. Uh, it's quite overwhelming. I think the most helpful thing for me has been finding um, those early um, kind of movers in this space, be it clinicians that have already adopted some technology or technologists that are developing 
um, things that are reaching a point of deployment. Um, it is a very new space commercially. Academically, it's been around for a while, but it commercially is new. So finding those people that have those market instant. Yeah, I'd say that's just general advice. Anyone looking to start um, start a business or um, building into any spaces, find people that know more than you about what you think you want to know about or that you think you don't know about and try and meet with them and speak with them. Because that's going to be the same like today when your business is tiny as it will be when your business is a, a baby, as a toddler. Like The steps are always the same. Find someone that knows the things that you don't know. And any tips on accessing data points? Is there any easy um, kind of storage that you can access? Is there data sets already made? Um, um, yeah, that continues to be a big barrier. Um, generally speaking, no. There are a few open source data sets um, that you can search for online. They're overexploited, really, and they're not really that valuable. Um, so unfortunately, that continues to be the barrier to developing novel solutions. Um, the, the more basic one would be you know, be the patient you're designing a solution for, stick on a device on yourself or whatever, and start using your very crude version of the app to generate very minimal data or get your friends to do that, uh, just so that you start appreciating at least the dimensions of the problem that you're trying to work towards. I'd say as well, building on that, have a look at um, NGOs and charities that operate in the space you're working in, because they're often at the front edge of delivering care and they don't have the resource to be going through the data that they generate. And you can often find incredibly amenable partners that just want someone to help aggregate and analyze their data. Uh, and there could be some like synergistic partnerships there that allow you to do the, the build the AI on, on their data and providing them with some degree of analysis. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. Um, I mean, in certainly in the UK, there's the uh, UK Biobank that you can sign up to as a researcher to, to get some data sets. But as Alina said, difficult to sort of extrapolate anything unique um, uh, around that because it is open source. Um, the whole sort of data set acquisition for AI startups in general, not just in healthcare, is really interesting because it is one where you've got to be very entrepreneurial yourself, even mm -hmm. at research level in order to acquire them. And obviously, you know, James and I have seen a ton of, of AI healthcare companies. And one of the, the really interesting things is when you deep dive into where people have got data sets from, it will either be, there'll be an element of uh, geographical specificity, as you alluded to, Alina, where it may not be necessarily transferable. The other thing that companies definitely need to watch out for is if you do do a partnership with a university or a hospital, is ensuring that you've got everything completely anonymized and, and you go through all the, the appropriate channels. Because with all of the sort of inquiry into Google DeepMind's partnerships with hospitals in London, you've got to be very, very careful around what you're doing there. And um, for Moorfield's data sets specifically, they took around about 12 months, if not more, to make sure that all of that data was structured and usable before it was handed over to Google to analyze. So that's one thing. The other thing is around IP of those data sets. So we've seen a ton of companies who've done partnerships with universities in Europe, in the US, and the universities control the, the IP behind the data sets. And then there's a commercial arrangement which needs to be put in place. And often, certainly at research level, people may not think beyond actually getting hold of those data sets. So things you need to think about are 
is that data set going to be exclusive to, to you, your project and your company going forwards? Because if it's not, that's not actually particularly defensible if someone else can train an algorithm off that same data set. And then secondly, are the commercial arrangements going forwards if you do set up a company based on the algorithm you've trained? Is it going to be beneficial to you commercially as a company? So we've seen IP agreements where uh, the original license holder of the data set gets upwards of sort of 60, 70 percent on any profitable revenue made from from whatever is built using that data set, which is, is pretty, you know, pretty ridiculous if you think about it. I don't know if you guys have come across anything else in, in that. Um, yeah, I mean, I second everything you're saying. Um, what's really missing in this space is a kind of a structured and established channel for people, patients, to make that choice of sharing their data with specific developers that are looking at the challenges they face. There are a few, I can't remember specific names now, but there are a few organizations that have tried piloting some solutions in this, but nothing has really scaled at this stage. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I think we've seen lots of um, people trying to get into that space of, of essentially giving patients the power to hold uh, their own data and then do with that data what they like. So we've seen everything from blockchain smart contracts around that, pushing data to pharma um, hmm. and to companies, um, to people who, who literally just um, sign users up to an agreement and hold it behind a, a secured cloud infrastructure. So we are very interested in that space uh, for investments. If, if anyone does have a or thinks they have a good solution to that, we'd obviously love to hear from them. Um, it, it's it's an interesting and it's a real sort of facilitator uh, for the AI space in general. Uh, if someone can find a, a good scalable solution to to anonymizing that patient data, but also making it available. Yeah, and also guaranteeing the fidelity of that data because I mean the brute force approach that some of the big tech companies have taken is just aggregating but that doesn't really guarantee quality and it doesn't really guarantee that you know what's captured via one app versus another app equates to the same input well that's it and i, I mean i i wonder long term whether this is actually a solution that's going to be solved by uh, the healthcare providers themselves so people like the nhs in the uk or uh, private providers internationally because they're the ones who at the moment are certainly, you know, certainly looking after and the gatekeepers of big data repositories um, and whether they decide to spend money, as you say, segmenting and structuring that and making sure it's valid and then commercializing it or whether they make it completely free open access is, is going to be really, I think, what governs what the AI space is going to look like in 10 to 20 years time, I would have thought. Mm, no, absolutely. And the UK has a really unique opportunity in this space, uh, given that we do have a reasonably centralized and standardized system compared to everyone else. For, for you guys, obviously, the, the tech is incredibly important. Alina, you know, particularly, t tell us a little bit about your own background and, and why you are able to make this technology uh, and make it better than other people. Um, so my background um, is biomedical engineering, data science. I um, started as a, you know, maths and physics graduate, um, but I was always really drawn to healthcare and healthcare innovation. And so I first did a master's at Oxford in biomedical engineering, then started working on different innovation projects. Um, a lot of them with the World Health Organization. Um, and that was about the time when I had the pneumonia experience then that I described earlier, uh, focusing on a very specific challenge. 
from then onwards, I really um, appreciated the level of evidence and also credibility you need in this space. Um, so I first did a PhD at Oxford um, in healthcare innovation, specifically focusing on machine learning and how that can be used to deliver remote diagnosis for respiratory conditions. Um, and then from then onwards, uh, we started building this up more commercially um, and have been since working with users at both ends, India and here. And for people looking at um, getting into health tech potentially as uh, either PhD students or people with uh, non-medical backgrounds, um, how did, did you meet Adam, your co-founder, and, and how did you find actually getting into uh, healthcare professionals to test your idea at an early stage? Um, so we met back 10 years ago, back at university when we were both studying maths and physics. Um, so it does, you know, does help having some common technicalities and the challenges that technology presents, but it's nowhere near essential. Um, I think multidisciplinary teams are definitely very valuable and um, the way to go forward. Um, in our case, Adam has much more commercial experience. Um, so we, we bring very different things um, to the business. Um, what was your second question? Sorry. <laughs> um, and, and how did you find sort of connecting with healthcare professionals at an early stage um, to, to really sort of make sure your idea was valid coming yeah. from a, a non-medical background? Brilliant question. Something incredibly important. Uh, I mean, ideally you want to have all of that <laughs> baked into a team, but um, given that you typically have one or two colleagues, I had sufficient um, experience and knowledge working with healthcare professionals uh, to really design our interaction um, to be incredibly rich uh, throughout the process. Um, so we have been working with doctors, GPs, uh, particularly in India, with people that face those community challenges on a daily basis. Um, and really our strategy has been to have as many of those early partnerships with care delivery organizations as possible so that we appreciate all the different facets of the problem. Um, so, you know, starting with pneumonia looks very different depending on the setting where you go. Um, so we've just uh, been very fortunate to have um, advisors and collaborators in that space. Adam, I guess your background sort of complementary to Alina's. Yeah, so we, we came from the same foundation, uh, library buddies at Warwick University. Um, I went more into, um, so I, I, I went from there into ops engineering. So I was uh, working on the shop floor, building nuclear submarines, uh, not directly building them, but I was in the ops function. So. Uh, basically process improvement, um, internal consultants to improve the build process. Um, I liked that, but it was a bit slow in uh, core engineering. So I went from there into management consulting, working on an international growth strategy for multinationals, particularly focused on fast moving consumer goods. But a lot of the levers that you can pull are quite transferable across businesses. Um, from there, I started my own uh, social enterprise at Fairfall. Uh, that was a that was a food business that made uh, made samosas in the UK and used our profits to fuel impact work in India, um, and that was really when Lena and I reconnected because I needed an outlet for the the work I was doing there, and she had a lot of NGO um, connections. So I, I worked with um, Apnalaya as well, the same the same NGO. And in that, in that experience, I worked across the value chain, so product development, uh, manufacturing, logistics. I looked after all the food safety legislation, um, all the back, uh, back office, legal accounting, branding, marketing, sales. So the full, the full value chain. So I have quite a holistic understanding of like, what it means to, to run, run a startup 
uh, across all those verticals. Uh, and then uh, having worked with Alina on that, that impact side of, of the work, when, when this opportunity came up, um, the change we were delivering there was really a reimagining of the way that traditional charity works. It wasn't a fundamental change to um, people, people's lives. Um, and so this, this opportunity has really appealed to me to, to deliver the future of health. So nuclear submarines, samosas, and then healthcare, <laughs> which is the most difficult to sell into, do you think? Oh, I think, I think actually the, the food business is horrific in the UK. Like, I mean, the level of regulation uh, in, in that was, uh, was incredibly stifling. I think this is the most inspiring work I've done. I think nuclear submarine sounds great on paper, but when you're in one, it just feels like you're in some sort of pipe factory that's been <laughs> squashed down to the point no one can fit. Uh, so yeah, this is definitely the the most most inspiring. We do, we do know how difficult it is to sell into healthcare. Though, because I, I remember Alina when you and I first had a conversation, probably about a year ago. I remember that you were you were still experimenting with your business model and things. You know, you'd spoken to some NHS CCGs, you'd spoken to some retirement villages, um, and also you had the, mm. the stuff in India going on. How was it for you in in building a business model in healthcare? Because obviously, there's so many different markets. It's so difficult. We hear so much about. Um, you know the NHS and B two C models, and as, as you've done with retirement villages, can you just talk us a bit through how your business models evolved from that idea stage until now? Been a really um, steep learning curve, really. Exactly what you're saying. Originally, um, the idea was let's go straight to the buyer. Let's you know target the CCGs because what we're doing is potentially saving them so much money. There's no reason why they wouldn't. Which is in great practice. theory, right? Um, <laughs> in theory, it sounds fantastic. In practice, it doesn't work. Um, and if anything, I just have a huge appreciation for why it doesn't work from their perspective. Um, you know, the, the level of evidence required to scale something is quite substantial. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they're operating quite a big machine. So it doesn't really um, make sense to uh, kind of fall into the trap of pyrotitis. So I get that. I appreciate that. Um, for us, it has been really an experience of figuring out what are the more intelligent ways of uh, plugging into the system to really get that evidence early on. Um, and that's something we're still in the process of doing. Um, so for us, that has been, you know, identifying private organizations uh, that are potentially fulfilling some public health contracts, uh, but at least already have that entry point, um, both into the health system and the regular interaction with patients. And, and there is a lot of pain we can alleviate for them. Um, and there are a lot of learnings we can gain from them to really demonstrate the impact we are having before we can tackle those larger contracts. Um, so more recently, we've really kind of come to the realization that the, the biggest value we, we could add early on is to those telehealth and telemonitoring organizations mm. uh, that are already servicing patients to an extent, but across the board lack that level of precision that we can bring. Um, so we we have really come full circle in some ways and focus on the core technology and the very um, kind of distinct group of organizations that are already in the field and they can directly. So can you give us an example of um, how you're working with one of those telemedicine organizations and what that kind of end-to-end offer looks like? Because again, what we know, obviously building businesses in healthcare and health tech is that if you can give um, a buyer that end-to-end solution rather than just solving a bit of the problem it tends to reap the the rewards right so yeah could you just talk us through an example of what that actually looks like practically yeah so for a lot of um, telemonitoring organizations for example the bottleneck remains the the shortage of doctors 
Um, so even if you manage to, let's say, plug in uh, technology into a retirement community to start taking some measurements, you still require a doctor at the other end to be reviewing those measurements on a regular basis, which makes the health economic case for such a remote proposition um, really challenging. It's still really expensive to deliver. Um, so we've we've really focused on how what can we save in that process? What can we automate? What can the AI to some extent replace, but also alleviate as a pain? Um, so the practical scenario would be, um, let's say you're a telemonitoring organization that has some devices being used um, in a pharmacy um, to conduct that original examination. We can automate the interpretation uh, of those devices so that the doctor is only required for that um, confirmation and verification of the analysis at the end. So all these signals being picked up by wearables, you can then confidently only, I guess, deliver um, the message to the clinicians when they actually need to be involved, right? Yeah, yeah. And the other, the, the other um, kind of element to that is really understanding um, how much of a filter the technology needs to be for a clinician. Mm-hmm. Because uh, there's nothing more horrifying to a, to a doctor nowadays than telling them they're going to be sending more and more data in their direction. <laughs> they're already massively overwhelmed. Um, so working with both ends, the community organizations that generate that data and also the health system that's supposed to absorb that data to understand what's the level of filtering the AI engine needs to provide um, is where, where our core value um, is at the moment. Yeah, that is actually really interesting. I mean, it's been a, a consistent criticism of mine for startups that do approach us at hs when they say that you know it's it's a standard thing to stick more wearables on people and you know 24 7 monitoring and you know with all this data you can then pick up these minute things and it always comes back to that that part of it which is who's actually going to wade through all this data it's one thing being sensitive to all these small things but you need to be specific too, right? And I think that's that's one of the yeah. reasons that we that you know we picked you guys on onto HS more than anyone else is because you you guys highlighted that as a as a focus of what you're doing. I think that's the key to really where we're we're positioning ourselves in the market. So our our beachhead strategy really is to go after these telemedicine providers who have that direct connection with patients that have needs. Um, the reason that they're so attractive, well, the relationship's incredibly synergistic because they have reams of data and they're starting to experience the pains of having doctors looking through it so they can, from day one, appreciate what, we, what we're, we're offering. Um, it, it allows us to establish that connection with the community, but it's important, really, to, to ensure that we can have the outcomes that are required to train the AI and make the AI better, that what we do serves the health system. And I think a lot of AI companies fail where they serve one side and not the other. And if you're pushing too many patients through the system, then you're not going to make any friends. So let's look at this from the, from the patient's view then. So fast forward, I don't know, six months, a year, five years, 10 years even, you know, with Febris fully integrated with all these telemedicine solutions. What does that actually look like for a patient? And what are the benefits that a patient's going to see and feel with your technology um, proliferated across? We see a future probably within within five years where, um, let's say, you have an elderly patient sitting at, sitting at home, maybe in a care facility. Um, they can have have a wearable. Uh, let's they're probably they're likely suffering from comorbidities, multiple chronic conditions. Um, it's incredibly complex to detect when something's going wrong, and by the time it does, they are hospitalised. 
um, their independence gets cut quite quickly from from that point. So they're they're um, sitting at home or in their care facility with with a wearable connected to uh, to a smartphone. Um, our AI will be able to detect when things are going wrong before it goes wrong. So we can detect if they're if it looks like they're about to have an episode of um, an ex- a lung exacerbation. Uh, to ensure that they get treatment before they're hospitalized. So the way it would link up with a telemedicine provider is, for example, um, our, our system picks up a red flag and then that patient can immediately be connected with uh, a telemedicine provider for a video consult, for example. And that doctor will know immediately what the problem is and what they can prescribe to stop that patient requiring uh, emergent care. So that's particularly important for um, what's called ambulatory care sensitive conditions. So things that can be managed in the community should be contained within the community. But nowadays cost the NHS nearly three, uh, three billion because they get escalated to the extent where the complication means the patient needs to be hospitalized. Um, so these are conditions like asthma, COPD, pneumonia, some of the cardiac conditions where if you... Um, have that information early on and you can intervene early on you can ensure that that patient is um, cured or at least treated in the community to prevent that complication from happening i I think your view of it's very realistic as well in the sense that we we heard on one of our previous podcasts david from vesalium was talking about how a lot of health tech companies at the moment are viewing healthcare as a product, you know, just something that's added on and, and solves a problem. Whereas what we need to be moving towards is actually viewing it more as a service. And that's exactly what you guys are doing is that you're, you're, you've got an understanding of the whole chain and, and it seems like, you know, you're integrating clinicians into what you do. And obviously the, the alerts that you're generating are then, are then going to clinicians at the right time. And you've really built that sort of clinician element, in which keeps the human element of healthcare involved, which I think is awesome. And I guess to my, my question is going to be, I guess, slightly controversial, but do you ever see the day where AI does completely wipe out clinicians? Not at all. I don't think AI would never um, really replace the empathy that comes with the uh, medical profession. Um, There's so many other things that a doctor brings. All the AI can do is really remove the complexity of um, interpreting large volumes of data, um, dealing with standardized interpretation, mm. and really democratizing that access point. Um, but the treatment and the care would always be delivered by a human. And you have to have, I guess, you, you know, you guys building an AI business in healthcare do you do you hold ethics close to you as you're building this business and and there's a i mean there's a lot of conversations around the ethics of ai and 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 the human integrating with it and things do you do you guys think about that as you're building fibrous out does that influence what you guys do yeah i think i mean in today's age i think regardless of what business you run you really need to be thinking about like the ethics of what you do um because it has a huge implication on patient user partner confidence in your delivery and this is new uh, right? ai is like a brand you know it's brand new almost Absolutely. especially in healthcare yeah. and yeah yeah especially when you see what happened to facebook i think their potential misconsideration of the ethics mm. of what they did when they started has led to like damage that is in some case in some ways irreparable and that's even worse with healthcare so yeah ethics is yes yeah, central to what we do um yeah it goes across um really the value chain from data security 
um, to the way you interact with a patient. So our technology is potentially originally being used for very vulnerable adults, children and the elderly. Um, so there is a lot of consideration to be put into, you know, what does it mean if a care worker can now tell someone that they have an asthma exacerbation? Um, and on that front, I'm going back to the previous point you made, um, which is healthcare is not a monopolistic space, unlike some other, you know, tech giants. Our vision will never be to exist in isolation. And it's so important to be completing that continuity of care and completing the value chain to ensure that what we're doing is entirely ethical within the health system. We even go back and forward on the ethics of pricing. Because we see all these com- big companies, again, Facebook is an example, they offer their services free and then they monetize off the data. And and from a, it creates a real ethical conundrum for health, a health tech business because if we can pr- pr- provide something free or incredibly um, low cost, then it means that more people will have more access to what we're offering. And yet there's this degree of um, well uncertainty uh, around like the monetization of data. And if that's really empowering the the individual to be central to their own their own healthcare if if we're just stripping it off the back end to to, to sell it to large pharma companies or whoever uh, will be procuring that that sort of data so i mean yeah the ethics of, of that is something that we consider continually go around and round on as well and what what happened i mean it's, it's a common question that i'm sure you guys get asked a lot but what happens when the machine gets it wrong I think when the machine gets it wrong, it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of the, the, the same situation as when a doctor gets it wrong. I, I mean, we, we have, uh, we do everything we can to make sure it doesn't get it wrong and that the risks are properly highlighted. So that um, if, if what we're suggesting is, is inconclusive, that that's articulated to the user so that they understand like what, what the risk is, but really, I mean, yeah, do you have? Yeah, going back to the previous point I made, we're not trying to replace doctors. Uh, whilst we would be a filter of information between the community and the health system, at the end of the day, that final decision is always made by a doctor. So the equivalence of what we're doing is really a medical device, let's say a CT scan. Uh, we can provide a level of automation and interpretation of the huge amounts of data, but it is the doctor's call that decides, you know, is that patient prescribed antibiotics versus something else? Um, so we are in no, in, in no way trying to remove that decision power from the medical system. Yeah, which is exactly what we talked about before, isn't it? About the fact that you guys aren't the product that's the be all and end all. You know, you're just built into the service, which just add, adds value and makes everything more accurate and improves the care, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the, the other interesting thing around um, what we're discussing on ethics and AI as a whole, if you look at the regulatory stance, not just in healthcare, but around everything, there is a real drive to make sure that AI is for good and is regulated. Now, in healthcare, um, in the US, the FDA have got um, their framework for AI-powered digital health solutions and a pre-certification pathway um, that companies can apply for. What has been your experience of, of looking at the regulatory aspects around this new and emerging uh, industry? Um, it's quite encouraging that the regulatory landscape is evolving. So the NHS published recently a code of conduct for data-driven um, solutions and technologies. 
Um, and I completely appreciate the challenge. Obviously, neither the FDA nor the CE were designed to uh, kind of regulate AI solutions. They were mostly designed for medical devices. Um, so whilst it's a bit of a difficult situation for us at this stage where we're trying to kind of um, fit our solution into what's a framework designed for a medical device, this space is evolving quickly and, you know, we are working um, continuously to um, stay on top of it and really figure out through conversations with the regulators um, what the future of that regulatory process would look like. And when you're getting um, things like you know your data sets to train your AI algorithm, what what are some of the difficulties? Say, for example, um, I mean we, we've, as James mentioned, we've had a number of companies apply uh, to HS that we've reviewed who've got some sort of AI uh, that's that's being trained on a data set, and, and we always look in detail at that data set to see exactly how accurate it's going to be and what they're extrapolating from. How important is is ensuring that data set is, is structured? Uh, and understanding where it's coming from? Um, I mean, data is everything in this space. Obviously, garbage in means garbage out. <laughs> there is a level of cleaning you can perform, but at the end of the day, if, if your original data is not representative of the health challenges you're trying to solve, you're not, you're not going to have anything that's scalable and transferable. Uh, there are a whole number of challenges in that space. Uh, the original one I hinted at in, in the beginning of the conversation um, regarding the value of hospital data sets. I mean, they're fantastic for hospital-based solutions. They don't generalize typically to the community. Um, so that's a big challenge. Um, the noisiness of the data is a very important one. Um, the standardization across sensors and medical devices, um, again, very important. And then there is a kind of an unknown space that we've ventured into, which is how do you ensure something is transferable across communities, across countries even, and, um, you know, ethnicities and so on. Um, and that's basically an unknown space um, that a lot of us are going into. Um, we've tackled it by really having a global approach to the way we capture our data sets. Uh, so we, we work both in India and the UK to do that. Uh, but there is a real challenge where a lot of the developers would focus on an isolated community and then find that once they've taken their AI to a different um, country, the generalization is just not there. And I mean, for the work that you've done, particularly in um, places like India and international regions with international um, data sets, you've won a number of awards, haven't you? Yes, so we've been very fortunate to be recognized by a number of awards that they're really supporting our growth. Um, I was awarded the Children's Prize at the back of the clinical study I ran in India, um, which supports innovation in child health. Earlier this year, we won um, RGA's Big Ideas competition um, that's really um, supporting our elderly application growth. Um, there are a few others in there um, that we've been really grateful to um, receive and have encouraged our growth. Very cool. And what, what's your sort of your plan for your own uh, journey as a company from where you are now to world domination in the AI? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think well, our market hook is uh, respiratory conditions. Uh, in the AI space, there's, there's quite a lot of competition that looks at uh, cardiac and diabetes, for example. Um, as huge chronic conditions that affect many elderly patients. But respiratory is uh, a little less less well-trod. So our market hook is across um, 
across respiratory conditions, being able to make that differential diagnosis. So is it bronchitis, pneumonia, um, is it a COPD exacerbation, et cetera. Um, and then beyond that, um, our vision is to start. So, so we want to really land grab with that strategy, um, be the go-to uh, provider of respiratory uh, diagnostics and monitoring, and then uh, expand from there into other disease verticals, um, either through proprietary IP or through licensing. So basically to provide that one-stop shop for the customer base that we have established. Very cool. And what sort of things are you, are you looking for at the moment? Um, where are you at in your journey? Are you raising investment? Are you looking to scale internationally are you looking for customers are you looking to hire people well all of the above we are fundraising uh we are also um constantly looking for partners um so going back to what adam just said um really proliferating our touch points um with the community telemonitoring organizations elderly care organizations global health organizations um so early stage pilots across the board um, and also um, expert advisors. Um, again, early in the com com conversation, we identified the importance of uh, really this multidisciplinary approach. So clinical experts, technical experts, um, we are constantly looking uh, for people who are passionate about our cause and um, are willing to get involved. And if people want to find out a little bit more about Febris or yourselves, uh, what are your contact details? Website is febris.com. So that's F-W-E-B-R-I-S.com. Um, and our emails are Elina, E-L-I-N-I, -I, um, at febris.com and Adam at febris.com.